Years ago, uh, a mentor in pastoral ministry mentioned something to me that has uh, stuck with me over the years. He, he said to me that any church, in any church, there is probably about a quarter of the congregation who is struggling with doubt, discouragement, and defeat. He also said that there's probably about a quarter of the congregation who are kind of just doing just fine, spiritually speaking. And I, I honestly can't remember what he said about the middle half. Um, but but my, my sense is, is that they are probably transitioning between those two poles of being encouraged or discouraged. In, in God's kindness, the, the psalm that Lord willing will be studying together this morning has help and hope for every person on this spectrum. To the encouraged, to the steadfast in heart, as our psalm would put it, there is a reminder to keep rejoicing in the steadfast love of the Lord. And for those transitioning between being encouraged and discouraged, there is a reminder that God in His sovereign, sovereignty has sovereignly saved sinners. And, and for the discouraged, there is the reminder that God has not only defeated our foes, but that He gives us help in the battle. If you haven't done so, already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 108. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find uh, Psalm 108 on page 507, page 507 of the Bibles provided. The Psalms, as, as many of you know uh, and have heard me say before, they're a wonderful collection of prayers and songs and poems of the ancient people of God. They were often used in Israel's corporate worship together. Psalm 108 is, is also a song, as you'll see from the ascription. And it was preceded by Psalm 106 and 107. Uh, Psalm 106 is a public confession of Israel's sins that occurred over the course of Israel's history. Like Psalm 108, uh, Psalm 107 closes with a petition and a consideration offered. The Israelites ask God to gather them together from distant lands. It's Psalm 106 uh, and they've been scattered from, so they might give thanks to the Lord. Then uh, Psalm 107 opened with a call for the people of God to give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And it concluded with a call for the people of Israel to be wise and to discern that God has always been present with His people, redeeming them, delivering them, and caring for them. And this is the attitude and wisdom that we see exemplified in Psalm 108. Here the psalmist expresses his confidence in God's character, his covenant love, and his sure conquest of his foes. Read, read Psalm 108 now. A psalm, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in His holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah 
my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia I will shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Every scholar, nearly every scholar I should say, nearly every scholar has observed that Psalm 108 is a composite psalm. Uh, It is a, a psalm composed of portions of two other psalms actually. Psalm 57 verses 7 and 11 and Psalm 60 verses 5 through 12. It's a composite psalm and yet it is a psalm that stands on its own with its own unique message. And as I've I've already hinted at, it is a psalm that exemplifies the wisdom that's called for at the end of Psalm 107. If you just look up a verse from Psalm 108, you look at the end of Psalm 107, 107 verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Now look at where Psalm 108 begins there in verse 1. Psalm 108, 1. My heart is steadfast. O God, I will sing and make melody with all my being. Psalm 108 comes from the pen of one who has carefully considered the steadfast love of the Lord and who has endeavored to bring God's love to his mind in the midst of trouble. Where most psalms move from trouble to trust, interestingly enough, Psalm 108 moves from trust to trouble. But that's not where it ends. It ends in confidence that God will tread down the foes of his people. And we learn three lessons from this psalm. First, a steadfast heart comes through remembering God's steadfast love. Secondly, salvation comes through God's exaltation. And finally, triumph comes through trust. And these are going to be the three points that we think about throughout the rest of of our sermon, so that the first point that we're thinking about this morning is that uh, is that is that um, a steadfast heart comes through steadfast love, steadfast heart through steadfast love. Uh, so let's consider this. Read read the first four verses there. Psalm one hundred eight. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So I've already mentioned that that Psalm 108 begins where Psalm 107 ends, but we need to explore that reality a little more deeply. The psalmist proclaims that his heart is steadfast, which is to say that it cannot and will not be moved from certainty. The psalmist is resolute, he's firm, he's unwavering. But what does that mean? Well, apparently it means he's going to sing. Uh, he's going to sing with his whole being. It means that he's going to use every instrument at his disposal to make music to the praise of God. He's going to use his voice, his musical talents and musical instruments to proclaim the majesty of God. Let's remember that this is poetic language. 
And the psalmist is simply piling ideas one on top of the other. So that we come to understand this heart is full of praise to God. We see this culminate in the idea that his praises will awaken the dawn. But he can't awaken the dawn. He can't make the sun rise with all of his joyful musical noise. But that's not the point. The the point is that his heart is so steadfast, so joyful, so fixed on praising God that in effect his praise ushers in a new day. The, The troubles of yesterday are past and in this the psalmist rejoices and gives thanks. He purposes to give thanks to the Lord. And not just among the people of Israel, but among the peoples of the world. That's what verse 3 is communicating through the the parallelism of giving thanks to the peoples and singing praise among the nations. Not only should the people of Israel know that glory, worship, honor, and blessing is due to God, but the whole earth and all of the peoples of the earth should know that the psalmist's praise is directed to the psalmist's God. Why? Why should the psalmist praise God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why should the whole world know that thanks and praise is due to God? The psalmist tells us why with the very first word of verse 4. For. That word signals to us that the psalmist is about to tell us the reason that his heart is steadfast, the reason that he praises God with his whole being, and the reason that his praise will proclaim the glory of God to the nations. The psalmist's heart is steadfast because of the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist's heart is overflowing of faithful praise because of the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. Later this this afternoon, I'd encourage you to go back and read Psalm 107. Because it's a remarkable testimony of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. In striking ways, that psalm reminds us of the steadfast love of the Lord through the history of the people of Israel. It reminds us that from slavery in Egypt to the Exodus, and from the Exodus to the exile, and through the exile to the restoration, God has been good to His people. And his love could never fail because he could never fail. His love endures forever because he endures forever. He has always loved his people and he will never stop loving his people because he cannot stop loving his people. Just as this was true for the Old Testament people of God, so this is true for the New Testament people of God. Indeed, God's steadfast love is great. He is faithful and firmly committed to his people. Nothing can break his commitments to them. It reaches to the clouds and above the heavens. And this idea reminds us of the extent of God's love and faithfulness. His love and faithfulness extends to what we can see and beyond. There is no end to his love and faithfulness. With all of this in view, we can see why the psalmist proclaims in verse 1, My heart is steadfast, O God. The ground of our assurance and conviction is in the character of God himself. We can refuse to be tossed about by the changing winds of culture. We can refuse to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, as we read about earlier, because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Children, youth, young adults, 
Doesn't this sound like a God worth serving? This world is full of change, full of hopes deferred. Friends that move or change. Teachers who change their standards or assignments. Coaches who let you down. This is sadly what often comes in a world full of sin. So put your trust in the one who never changes. The one whose steadfast love for his people never ends. Talk with your parents or or a mature Christian friend about how their lives are different because of the steadfast love of the Lord. That would be a great conversation to have this afternoon or this evening. The psalmist says that his heart is steadfast because of God's enduring love. Christian, I, I wonder if you feel like you've got a steadfast heart like the psalmist does. Think back on this past week. Do you feel like you were knocked around a bit? Reflecting on my week, there were certainly moments when my heart was knocked around a bit. My heart was not perfectly unmoved and resolute and resistant to the struggles that we have in this world. <clears throat> Struggled with patience and kindness throughout the week. It's because I haven't remembered the steadfast love of the Lord, His patience and kindness with me. If, if, we're, if we're honest, then I think that we'll admit that our hearts are not always and fully steadfast in the Lord. Which is why I, I so appreciate what the psalmist, what David teaches us here. We don't simply say to ourselves, well, I've got to do better next week. And then lean on our own understanding and strength. No, we look to the steadfast love of the Lord. In our moments of struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil, we struggle to love like Jesus loves with perfect patience and kindness. We look to the steadfast love of the Lord. We remember that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that His mercies never come to an end, and that they're new every morning because great is His faithfulness. In those moments of trouble and trial, we remember the steadfast love of the Lord and we ask for mercy and grace and help in that time of need. We ask the Lord to give us a steadfast heart and to even use that trial or temptation that we are facing to fashion us, fashion within us a steadfast heart. Let's also pray that the Lord would give us opportunities to proclaim His steadfast love among the nations. Let's pray that God would provide us with opportunities to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with those who don't know Him. I don't know about you, but this is one of my regular prayers for our congregation. That the Lord would be pleased to use us and our church to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That the Lord would be pleased to use us to make disciples and to see new believers come into the kingdom of God. Let's pray that the Lord provide us with meaningful and natural opportunities to give thanks to the Lord among the peoples of our workplaces and neighborhoods and communities. And let's pray that the Lord would bring them to faith in Christ. Well, having considered that a steadfast heart comes through remembering God's steadfast love, let's now turn and consider our second point. Salvation through exaltation. Salvation through exaltation. And here we're reading... Uh, Psalm 108, verses 5 to 9. Read Psalm 108, verses 5 to 9. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in His holiness. 
With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Having committed himself to exalt God in his worship, the psalmist turns his devotion toward positive petitions. Notice the language of be exalted and let your glory in verse 5. These are actually positive admonitions. They are imperatives actually directed toward God. The psalmist wants God to exalt himself and display his glory throughout the earth. Why? Well, it would certainly be enough to say that God should exalt himself because he is worthy of all possible honor and confidence and love. He deserves to be glorified for his glorious character. He deserves to be proclaimed as great because of his loving and faithful character. But the reason for this imperative, the reason for this request is far more personal. God, exalt yourself. Look at verse 6. That, or even better, so that your beloved ones may be delivered. That's a purpose clause there. And it's one of my favorite phrases in this psalm, in Psalm 108. The psalmist describes God's people as his beloved ones. God's people are loved by him. His steadfast love is directed toward those whom he loves. God is love. And he particularly loves his people in a unique and special way. This phrase, beloved one, indicates gentle, genuine, and gracious adoration. God delights in his people. God loves his people tenderly like a father loves his children. He loves his people passionately like a husband loves his wife. God loves his people with patience and kindness. He loves us with a love that never ends. And here the psalmist is appealing that God would glorify his name so that the ones whom he cherishes and loves will be delivered. The trouble that this psalm presents is that God's people need to be delivered. Or to put it in the terms of the second half of verse 6, God's beloved ones need to be given salvation. They need to be rescued from harm. The psalmist appeals to the only one who can do something about the trouble. And he appeals with intensity, doesn't he? He exclaims there, answer me. He boldly requests an answer from God. And that may be putting the emphasis mildly. It's at this point that he remembers that the answer has already been given. In verse 7, he remembers the promises of God. And in particular, he remembers that God has made these promises on the basis of his own holy character. When we read that God has promised in his holiness, what we're to understand is that God is in effect sworn by himself. He has sworn by his own holy character like he did with Abraham when he promised to give him many children and a land for him to dwell in, a land for them to dwell in. Here we see that God has promised that he would divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. And what does this mean? And when did God promise this? What we need to remember is that Shechem and the valley of Succoth, they, they actually stand as a summary for the whole of the promised land. And at one level, we could point back to God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and say that that was the occasion 
that he made these promises. In his covenant with Abraham, God swore by himself to make good on these promises. We also know that he kept them. For we actually have God portioning out and dividing up the land that he promised to give Abraham's descendants in Joshua chapters 13 through 22 in the conquests. No wonder that verse 8 says, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, and Judah my scepter. Here the psalmist picks the two largest tribes on both sides of the Jordan River as a way to continue to summarize the Lord's possession of the land and His people. And the entrances of the images of the, the helmet and the scepter remind us that the Lord is the protector and the ruler of His people. Whatever the present situation may be when the psalmist wrote this, whatever the present situation may be, what has always been will always be, the God of heaven rules the earth as the warrior king. And this is a wonderful reminder to God's people as terrifying enemies of Israel emerge in verse 9. Moab, Edom, and Philistia hounded Israel throughout her history. But here they are presented as those subdued and conquered by the warrior king, Yahweh, by the Lord. As one scholar observed, Moab was nothing more than a bucket of water that God used to wash off the dirt and blood of war. Edom was a land which God tread underfoot. And Philistia closed its mouth in silence when God opened his in a victory shout that proclaimed his triumph. As I hinted at earlier, through the reference to Joshua chapters 13 through 22, all of this seems to be hearkening back to God's conquest of the land of Canaan. So what are we seeing? So what we're seeing in verses 7 to 9, we're seeing Israel's deliverance from her enemies through God's triumph over them, or Israel's salvation through God's exaltation. And his exaltation comes through his victory. So let's, let's put the pieces of the puzzle together for these verses. The psalmist thinks that he and the people of God may be delivered and saved through God exalting, glorifying, and victoriously vindicating his name. The psalmist petitions God to vindicate his name, to let his name have its just due that it deserves which is that of being supremely exalted and glorified over all. Do you see how the psalmist views his salvation, the salvation of the people of Israel, as a result or a consequence of the exaltation of God? It's especially clear there in verses 5 and 6, I think. And did you know that this is how the New Testament authors, and even Jesus himself, spoke of the salvation of the people of God? In fact, I want us to turn to John 17 and see this. So turn, keeping one finger here, turn your Bibles to John 17. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you, can find, you can find the passage uh, on page 903. John 17. Here, in this passage, Jesus connects the glory of God the Father to the salvation of sinners. He prays that the salvation of sinners would come to pass through God glorifying Himself in Jesus' death, exalting Himself in Jesus' death. So read, read John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus spoke these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The cross of Jesus Christ was God's appointed hour. It was the hour toward which all of human history was moving. And it is in view of that hour Jesus prayed and asked the Father to glorify the Son, to glorify Himself. In the eyes of fallen humanity, that hour, the cross, was an hour of defeat and shame. But in the eyes of the Savior, that hour was the hour in which the eternal Son of God would be glorified. And when the Son asks the Father to glorify Him, the Son is asking that the Father would reveal in the cross His heavenly glory, the glory which the Son had laid aside in order to enter the dark world and redeem sinners like you and me. The revelation of Jesus' own heavenly glory wasn't the end, though. We see at the end of verse 1 that Jesus wanted the Father to be glorified. Now, if, if there ever was a moment in which we could sympathize with Jesus and say, you know what, go ahead and, and take your moment in the spotlight. Take your moment in the sun. This would be as an appropriate moment as any. But Jesus would have none of it. His glory is not an end in and of itself. He asks for glory in order to glorify. In the cross, we are not only to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Son, but we are also to see just how good and gracious and glorious the Father is. It was through the bruising of His own beloved Son that He would, to use the words of Psalm 108, verse 6, deliver and give salvation to His beloved ones. It was because of the work of salvation accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection that He could give and does give eternal life to all those that the Father had given to Him. My non-Christian friend, I wonder what you think of Jesus' death on the cross. Does it strike you as a strange thing for Jesus to ask God the Father to display His glory in a gruesome and grueling death? Does it seem strange that far from bringing shame upon God, Jesus' death brought Him glory? Does it seem strange that it was through Jesus' death that He could secure salvation and eternal life for His beloved ones? Friends, this is where you need to understand that there is one and only one living and true God. And He made the world and all that is in it to bring Him glory. He made the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and He set them in a beautiful garden. He called them to love Him and serve Him and glorify Him. But sadly, one day they chose to love and serve and glorify themselves instead. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It is rebelling against God and deciding to live your own way rather than God's way. And this is something that we have all done. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And my guess is, is that you even have a sense of this through your own life and experience. You know that you've done things that are wrong. Uh, you know everyone else has too. Uh, you've probably even said at some point, you know, no one is perfect. We have all decided to reject God and to, to distance ourselves from Him through our sin. In effect, we, we've said to Him, 
I don't want to know God or glorify Him. The problem with our rejection of God, our deciding not to know Him, not to glorify Him, is that it brings us eternal death and not eternal life. Because of our sin, we all justly deserve to face God's holy wrath against our sin forever in hell. That means that we all need to be saved, delivered, as Psalm 108 puts it. We need to be rescued. And friend, there is good news. We can know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He sent and so have eternal life. God sent His one and only most beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that you and I have not lived. Jesus never sinned. And yet He died on the cross. On the cross, He took upon Himself all of the sin and all of the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and put their faith in Him. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that in His life and death, He stood in the place of repenting sinners and that His life and death in their place was acceptable in God's sight. That's what Jesus' resurrection proves. And now Jesus invites all to turn from their sins and to trust in Him. Friend, Jesus invites you to believe that He lived for you, the life that you have not lived before God. To believe that He died for you, the death that your sins deserve. And that He was raised from the grave for you so that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight and be given eternal life. My non-Christian friend, you have, you have a choice today. And I urge you to choose Christ. Receive this message about Jesus Christ. Believe that God sent Him to die for your sins. Believe that it was through Him being lifted up and glorified in His death and resurrection that you can be saved. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ today. And if you want to know more about what it means that the salvation of sinners comes through the exaltation of Jesus Christ and God the Father, Come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important and no more joyful news that exists in this world than this good news about Jesus Christ. That salvation comes through His exaltation. The salvation of sinners comes through the glory of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. And turning back to Psalm 108, because you kept your finger there, turning back to Psalm 108, um, we, we see that the petition of the psalmist was certainly and ultimately answered in Jesus Christ. The theme of glory and triumph continues in this psalm. But it is first interrupted through a series of questions which concern the psalmist. And as we turn to consider our third point, triumph through trust. Triumph through trust. Read Psalm 108 verses 10 through 13 now. Psalm 108, verses 10 through 13. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. The triumphal shout of God in verse 9 gives way to questions in verse 10. And we can only wonder if the questions of verse 10 are questions which spring from a steadfast heart or a trembling soul. 
They, they come just after God has declared that he will be victorious over Edom. So, so perhaps the psalmist thinks to himself, okay, let's get on with it then. Let's go conquer Edom. Who's going to lead us to Edom? But if the question of verse 10 is one that's filled with confidence, then why is it followed in verse 11 by a question that is clearly filled with concern? Have you not rejected us, O God? It seems as though the psalmist feels a certain lack of God's presence in his present circumstance. After all, he says, you do not go out, O God, with our armies. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever wondered if God is really with you? Can't you sympathize with David, with the psalmist? The Puritans used to call this feeling the feeling of being deserted. Christian, you need to know that you are never, ever alone. You have never, ever been deserted by God, and you never, ever will be. He has said that he will not leave us nor forsake us. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. He has said that he is always with us even to the very end of the age. Matthew 28 20. Christian, you can sympathize with the psalmist. But you must also learn from him. What does the psalmist do when the fear of God's rejection comes over him? What does he do when he fears that God will not go out with the armies of Israel against their foes? He prays. He prays that God would grant Israel help from heaven. He pleads with God to be near and more than to be near, to be mighty against Israel's foes. Why? Because vain is the salvation of man. There is no ultimate and final help. There is no deliverance. There is no rescue to be found in the armies of Israel. The people of Israel could not save themselves. You just think about Israel's history. Whenever Israel went into battle without the Lord, they lost. So let me ask you this. Do you pray when you feel alone? Do you pray to the God who is right there with you? Do you pray for God to grant you help from heaven? Have we learned this lesson from the psalmist? I know that I need to keep learning this lesson from the psalmist, from David. We not only need to learn the lesson of the need to pray, but we also need to learn the lesson of not trusting our own strength and power. On our own, we are empty and weak. That's what those, that word vain means, just empty. We, we are weak. When we endeavor to fight sin in our own strength, we fail. Our sin is not a man-sized problem. It's a God-sized problem. I'm reminded of a, a hymn uh, written by one of the earliest female hymn writers within the Baptist tradition, uh, Annie Sherwood Hawks. At the age of 37, she wrote, I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. I need thee every hour. Teach me thy will 
and thy rich promises in me fulfilled. This hymn very quickly became popular among Baptist churches, within Baptist churches, and it's easy to see why. Later on in her life, uh, after her husband died, Annie Hawks uh, would say of this hymn, quote, I did not understand why this hymn had touched the throbbing heart of humanity. It was not until long after, when the shadow fell over my way, the shadow of great loss, that I understood something of the comforting power in the words which I had been permitted to give out to others. Christian, have you felt what Annie Hawks and the psalmist have felt, the fear of God's absence and the need of God's nearness? If, if you've not felt this lesson, then just tuck this away uh, for, for when that day comes. Uh, when you feel alone and when you feel that there is distance between you and the Lord, remember to pray and to plead. And we also need to remember to trust. Look again at verse 13. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. I find the first two words of verse 13 encouraging. In those two words, with God, the psalmist is expressing belief and faith and trust. Just remember, two verses earlier, the psalmist was concerned that God was not with his people. He said, you do not go out, O God, with our armies. But now in verse 13, it's an assumption that God will be with the psalmist and the people of Israel. This is how it was going to be and how it has been all along. Remember, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The psalmist is believing that God is faithful to his people and his promises. The psalmist is taking God at his word. After all, in his holiness, God has promised his protection and presence. The triumph is certain. Israel will do valiantly because God will tread down their foes. He will cast his shoe upon Edom just as he promised. With man, there is no victory. There is no salvation. But with God, there is only victory, triumph, and salvation. He is the one who treads down the foes of his people. He will do it, and he has done it. He defeated Egypt. He defeated the foreign armies in the wilderness. He defeated the peoples who inhabited the promised land. He defeated the Philistines through the armies of David. And ultimately, he has defeated the foes of sin and death through Jesus Christ. Remember what our God has promised in His holiness. In Genesis chapter 3.15, God promised that the head of the serpent would be crushed right after the fall, right after sin. God promised that He would send a Savior. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you think about this, that God has done this in Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of us in this past week have lived in the reality of Satan's defeat or if we have felt defeated. At, at one level, our triumph over sin and death has been accomplished, and, and yet at another level, it is yet to be accomplished. Tonight, uh, in the evening service, when we celebrate communion together, our brother Jed's going to help us think more particularly about God's triumph over sin and death in Jesus Christ. We're going to reflect 
uh, on this from the passage we heard read earlier in the service from Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 6 through 15. And there Paul, he reminds us of God's triumph in Jesus Christ. And I want us to think about this same thing from a slightly different angle. I want us to think, uh, I want us to, 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 to keep God's promise to crush the head of the serpent from Genesis 6.15 in mind. And I want us to keep Psalm 108 verse 13 in mind. So, so remember this, look at verse 13. Remember this, with God we, we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. I want you to remember the He and the we of verse 13. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. There is an action that God takes and there is an action that we will undertake. God will tread down our foes and we will do valiantly. In other words, we will triumph. Our foes are sin and Satan. And with these things in mind, brothers and sisters, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I want us to look at verses 14 to 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's on page 1002. 1002. Remembering the he and the we. Here in in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, we are learning what he has done. How God has treaded down our foes. The author of Hebrews is writing to a believing community that's feeling tempted to turn away from the living God. He is writing to believers who feel defeated. And he is reminding them of the triumph that Jesus has accomplished. Listen to what he has done. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Since therefore the children, here the writer is speaking about the children of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, Jesus, he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So do, do you hear what the writer to the Hebrews is saying? In verse 14, he is saying that the eternal Son of God became a man by taking to himself true uh, flesh and blood, a body of true flesh and blood, so that he might destroy the devil. The eternal Son of God took flesh to himself so that he might crush Satan. To use the language of Psalm 108, Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he might cast his shoe upon the head of the serpent and tread down our foe. That is what he has done for us. That is what he has done. Do you remember the we of Psalm 108, 13? With God, we will do valiantly. And this is where I want us to conclude. Notice verse 16 of chapter 2. He didn't come to help the angels. He came to help us. The children of Abraham. Those who have hearts circumcised and live by faith. He came to help children of Abraham. He came to help you and me. He came to help us cast our shoe upon the head of the serpent too. With God, with Jesus, we will do valiantly. This is the encouragement we need today and every day. God has triumphed in Christ and with Him we will triumph through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Or as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with us because without him, we can do nothing. And because he knows how to crush Satan, he's done it after all. Brothers and sisters, as the Lord continues to cause the sun to arise, to awaken the dawn and bring about a new day, remember the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. Remember that he has accomplished the work of salvation through the exaltation of his son. Remember that he has tread down our foes and with him and only with him, he gives us the strength through Jesus Christ to do the same. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the triumph of the Lamb who was slain. Lord, we give you thanks that in, in that hour of Christ's death, he was glorified so that we might be redeemed and rescued and saved. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray for steadfast hearts. Lord, you know how much we need that. So we pray that you would often bring to our minds your steadfast love. How your love never fails. How your love endures forever. Oh Lord, we pray and ask that you would strengthen our faith so that we might live and walk in Jesus Christ. It's in our Savior's name that we pray. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, our closing song is entitled Before the Throne of God Above. And it can be found on the insert in your bulletin. Let me encourage you to go ahead and pull that insert out.